Yeah, I was about to say, I thought you hid that from me. I hid it from myself. I actually think that I did. Yeah, I, I took it down there to check it, and then I never put it back up here. It's exactly what I did. Uh, but, we'll, but we'll blame it on Wiley. You know, the first song was blamed on. We'll, we'll, we'll blame that one on Wiley, too. Isn't that right? It's good to be together tonight. Appreciate the day that we've been able to spend in worship together. I hope that today's been encouraging for you. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and we're going to be studying in verses 1 through 12 tonight. If you want to follow along in your copy of God's Word, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Leslie and I are glad to be back this Sunday. We missed being with you last Sunday. I know that some pretty great things happened last Sunday, and we missed being here, but we also enjoyed being back in Middle Tennessee with both sides of our family, especially as my sister graduated from high school, got to walk, see her walk across the stage. And so we're proud of her and thankful for her. She's actually going to be going to Freed Hardman in the fall. And then another thing that I thought I might mention is that last Monday was the one-year anniversary of the day that we tried out. So I thought that was pretty awesome. Uh, the first time I stood in this pulpit, maybe for some of you, it feels like it's been like four or five years. I don't know if you feel that way, but I know that we appreciate being here and we've loved what the last year has been. We found a great family here at Seven Oaks. We're thankful for you. and We love you very much. But tonight we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 as we continue to work our way throughout the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. I hope that as we've been studying this gospel together, you've been impressed with Jesus. I hope that you've been impressed with Jesus's power. I hope that you've been impressed with his devotion to God and his love for people. We saw that in chapter 1. We're going to continue to see that as we work throughout the entirety of the gospel. Tonight we're going to be looking at a section of scripture, a story, a narrative that I believe to be very powerful. And I believe to be very relevant for our lives today. It's a story that's recorded not only here in Mark chapter 2, but if you want to make a little note, it's also recorded in Matthew chapter 9 and Luke chapter 5. If you want to go and study the parallel accounts just a little bit later, it's the story of where Jesus heals a man who was paralyzed. The healing of the paralytic. So as we think about this story tonight, there's a couple of things that I want us to do, and this is going to be a little bit different than how we've studied the Gospel of Mark over the last few weeks. What we're going to do first is I want us to just walk through this story. Maybe you've read and studied this story before, or maybe this is the first time that you're hearing this story. I want us to walk through the details of the narrative to see what happens in this story as Jesus is teaching, as Jesus is preaching, as we see His authority, as we see His power and His healing. I want us to notice the narrative. Let's walk through the story together, and then when we come to the end, as we conclude, we'll see how we can apply this to our lives. But let's begin by walking through this story. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time, appreciating this amazing, powerful, and relevant story that Mark presents to us in the first 12 verses of chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says that Jesus returned to his home. The place that he called home in his adulthood, he returned back to the city of Capernaum. We saw Jesus in the city of Capernaum a little bit earlier in Mark 
chapter 1. Remember, he goes into the synagogue. He cast out a demon from an individual in the synagogue. He was teaching in the synagogue. He goes out to Peter's house. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then people of various groups come for healing. They come to have demons cast out of them. They come from all over the place. And Jesus spends the evening doing that. When he wakes up the next morning, he goes to spend some alone time with God in prayer in Mark chapter 1 and verse number 35, the people were looking for Him. When they woke up, when the city of Capernaum finally woke up, they were wondering where Jesus was. And so Simon Peter and the other disciples were searching for Him in 36. When they found Him, they told Him in 37 that everyone in Capernaum is looking for you. But then the words of verse 38 are important for a couple of different reasons. Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I, may, that I might preach there also. Jesus was in the city of Capernaum and says, we need to leave Capernaum. We can't spend all of our time here. We need to go to other towns so that I can preach the Word of God to them, so that I can teach them God's will. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Mark doesn't record it for us. He doesn't record the circuit that Jesus takes or the cities that Jesus goes into. The story, the only story that he records is how he heals the leper in verses 40 through 45 of Mark chapter 1. But now he comes back from that journey. He comes back home. He comes back to the city of Capernaum. And it was reported in verse 1 that he was there. How do you think the people responded when they heard that Jesus was back in the city of Capernaum. We saw it in chapter 1. We're going to see it throughout the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. Look at verse number 2. There were many gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. Jesus is in a house. More than likely, He's inside of Peter's house. We saw Him inside of Peter, Peter's house back in chapter 1, as we mentioned just a few moments ago. He's inside of this house, and when people hear that He's in Capernaum, they come running. They track Jesus down. And they pack into this house like sardines. They would have been shoulder to shoulder. If you were standing in this house, you'd have a person directly in front of you, directly behind of you, and on both sides of you, basically like a sandwich, pushing you in. Mark says there wasn't even room at the door. The people were spilling out onto the street. This house was so filled with people. Of course, it was filled with common people. It was filled with people, no doubt, who had diseases, who wanted to be healed. People who were possessed by demons that wanted those demons casted out. People who just wanted to hear the gospel. But we also find in Mark, the second chapter, that the scribes were present. Luke gives us a little bit more detail in Luke chapter 5. He says that the Pharisees and scribes from every village in Galilee, every village in Judea, and scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem were present in this house today. They had heard about this new teacher. The Jewish religious leaders had heard about this man who was teaching as one having authority, and he was performing all of these amazing miracles. And so they want to witness Jesus for themselves. They want to see Jesus with their own eyes, and so they're gathered together along with these common people. Jesus has this large group gathered together in Mark chapter 2 in one place, such a large group that they're spilling out on the street. What does He do? Jesus is not going to miss out on an opportunity to preach. 
Jesus was a preacher. We've mentioned that several times. Mark chapter 1 and verse 38, we read a part of it just a few moments ago. But notice when you read Jesus' words in its entirety, He says, let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that's why I came out. Jesus says, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing, is to preach the Word of God and to help people know more about God and how they can connect with God and how they can be pleasing to God. So as Jesus has this large crowd gathered, He's not going to waste an opportunity to preach. Mark records that He was preaching the Word to them. Well, as we transition to verse 3, we transition scenes just a little bit. Mark goes from what's happening inside of a house where Jesus is teaching this large group of people to what's going on outside of the house. Mark says there were four friends who had another friend that they were carrying on a bed, a friend who was paralyzed. The Bible calls him a paralytic. The friends came from no telling where to get this man to put him on top of the bed. You can see them on each end, on each corner of the bed, carrying him to bring him to Jesus. Can you imagine how they felt when they walked up to the house and they saw people spilling out onto the street? It's kind of like going to a restaurant on Sunday afternoon and the line is out the door and they're standing room only and people are sitting outside waiting on a table. You know what I do in those situations? I don't even stop the car. Okay, well keep, keep driving, throw up your hands. I guess we're not eating here today. There's too many people. We're going to go somewhere else. Anybody else do that? Maybe a few, yeah. I imagine that's how they may have felt initially. They walk up to the house. They're carrying this man on a bed. It takes four of them to carry it. And they realize there's no way we can get to Jesus. Look at this crowd. I mean, it would have been worse than Disney World. They're packed inside of this house there's no way they could get the bed in there. Well, we'll try again the next time he comes into town. We just couldn't do it today. You know, he's not going to be able to heal you today, our paralyzed friend, because there's just too many people here. We can't deal with it. Is that what they did? No, first century homes, the majority of them were very small. They were circular and just had one room. And the roof was flat that they would use for a number of different activities. You would get up on top of the roof through a staircase that was on the outside. If you were standing inside looking up at the roof, you would see wooden cross beams with straw and mud packed down on top of it. That's what their roofs were made of. So can you see the four men as they're carrying their paralyzed friend on the bed? They go up the stairs... They get up on top of the house and they start digging in the roof. They're throwing straw and they're throwing mud over their shoulders. This would have been a really hard job. And they dig to the point that it's not just a little hole, just barely big enough to fit the man through to drop him in front of Jesus. I think this picture might be a good depiction of what it looked like. They dug such a big hole in more than likely Peter's roof that they lowered the man on the bed down in front of Jesus. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be in the house whenever that was happening? 
You're listening to Jesus teach, and all of a sudden some mud and straw starts to come down, and you think, okay, that's a little bit weird. But then it starts looking like it's snowing, straw and mud falling down on top of your head. Then you look up and you see just a little hole in the roof, just enough to let some sunlight come through. And the hole keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that they're able to take a paralyzed man on a bed and lower him down in front of Jesus. I imagine this group was confused, wondering what in the world was going on. Maybe they would have been a little bit angry because their message that they came to hear was disrupted. I don't imagine Jesus continued teaching while this hole was being created. Imagine being the owner of the house. It was more than likely Peter. Do you think he was a little bit upset by this? That now he has a huge hole in his roof that he's going to have to fix? Thank goodness Jesus was a carpenter. Maybe. The man is lowered down in front of Jesus and it has everybody's attention. Everybody's looking at the hole in the roof. Everybody's focused on what's going on. What does Jesus see? What does Jesus' focus on? Oh, Jesus doesn't focus on the hole in the roof. Jesus doesn't see the hay and the mud that would have been falling down on top of everybody. According to Mark chapter 2, Jesus saw the men's faith. That these men had so much faith that Jesus could heal their friend that they went up on top of the roof and dug this big hole and lowered him down. And when he saw their faith, he said the words in Mark chapter 2 and verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus took care of the paralytic's biggest problem first. Being paralyzed would have been a problem, as you can imagine. Being paralyzed wouldn't have been fun. That would have been a difficulty in his life. But even worse than being paralyzed is being a sinner. Even worse than being paralyzed is having your own sins stain your soul. And so Jesus takes care of his biggest problem first. He looks at him and says, on the basis of not just his faith, but the faith of his friends, and says, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Those are words that we should all want to hear. When Jesus speaks those words in verse 5, it starts a theme that we're going to see throughout the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. We're going to study next week from chapter 2 and verse 13 all the way to chapter 3 and verse 6. Hey, if you're going to be, just as a side note, if you're going to be the Scripture reader next week, I'm not going to make you read all of that. Uh, Just a couple of verses there. Brad was a trooper today. He had a couple of long Scripture readings. I had to personally apologize to him for that. I never look, just so you know, because I want to have a clear conscience until the person actually has to get up and read. Um... But we're going to look at a lesson next week called the complaints of the religious. And it's this section of Scripture that's all about conflict. This is where the conflict begins in Mark chapter 2 and verse 5 where Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. The Jewish religious leaders take issue with that. You can see it in verse number 6. They began questioning in their hearts. They didn't say anything out loud. They're going to, but not yet. They didn't say anything out loud. You probably couldn't even see it on their face. They were just thinking it in their minds. Verse 7, why does this man speak like that? Where does he get the authority to say those words? He's blaspheming. He's claiming to do something that only God can do. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Look at this new teacher. He's claiming to be able to forgive sin? Are you kidding me? Mark records that 
emphasizing Jesus' divinity, Jesus knew their thoughts. He didn't hear what they said. He didn't see it on their face. Jesus read their minds. And knowing what they were thinking, He addresses them with a couple of questions. The first one comes in verse number 8 to grab their attention. Why do you question these things in your heart? I imagine the Jewish religious leaders would have responded with, in a couple of different ways. First, they would have thought something like, what do you mean why are we questioning this? Everybody knows that only God can forgive sin. We have a reason to question this. But then there was maybe another part of them that was saying, wait, how do you know what we were thinking? How do you know the question that we were asking in their hearts? If someone called you out for what you were thinking, would it grab your attention? It grabs their attention. And so Jesus asked them a question that has to do with His authority in verse number 9. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Whenever I was younger, I read that very literally. Whenever I was a teenager, I thought that Jesus was saying, okay, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, four words, or son, take up your bed and walk, seven words. Which one's easier to say? Well, wouldn't you rather say four words than seven words? Isn't four words easier to say than seven? So it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than son, take up your bed and walk because it's less words. Four verses seven. Well, have you ever done a math question where you got the right answer, but you did it the wrong way? And I think that's where I was back whenever I first read through this text and really thought seriously about it, the right answer is your sins, are easy, your, your sins are forgiven. That's easier to say. But do you know why it's easier to say that? Because you can't see sins being forgiven. That's something that happens in the spiritual realm. Your sins being forgiven, you, you can't see that externally. But what if you look at someone who's paralyzed, who, who's never been able to walk, and you say to them, hey, pick up your bed and walk. Either they're going to do it, and it's going to be an amazing miracle, or they're going to continue to lie there as a paralytic, and you're going to be proved as a false prophet. One requires external proof, and one doesn't. And so it's a lot easier to claim your sins are forgiven because there's no way to prove whether or not they are than to say, pick up your bed and walk to someone who's never been able to do that. So Jesus asked them a question, and, and that's what they're thinking. Well, of course it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say, pick up your bed and walk. So Jesus capitalizes on it. He meets the conflict head on, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He turns to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. What happened? All that Jesus had to do was speak. All that Jesus had to do was tell him, hey, pick up your bed and walk back to your house. Basically, do something that you've never been able to do. Mark uses the word immediately. It's one of his favorite words. Immediately, the strength came to the paralytic's legs. He got up and he started walking. I picture him as jumping, unable to contain his excitement. He's running around, grabbing and hugging anybody that he was able to meet, so excited that now he's able to walk. But this miracle from Jesus, it wasn't just to benefit the paralytic. It wasn't just to cause somebody to walk who's never been able to walk. This miracle had a specific purpose in the eyes of the scribes and Pharisees. What was it? It was to demonstrate the authority that Jesus has to forgive sins. 
Jesus is basically looking at the scribes and Pharisees and saying, you're right. Only God can forgive sin. I am God. That's what you need to understand about me. It's a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven than rise, take up your bed, and walk. Well, let me do what's harder. And whenever I do what's harder, that will prove to you that I can do what's easier. If I can tell this man to pick up his bed and walk, and he walks back home, that proves to you, Jesus says, that I have the authority to also forgive his sins. It's about Jesus' authority. This is what this section of Scripture is all about. And so we, we zoom out in verse number 12 and we see how the crowd responded to this amazing miracle. The Bible says they were all amazed. How couldn't you be? They were glorifying God. That's the point of everything we do, isn't it? We don't want people to glorify us. Jesus didn't want people to glorify Him. Jesus wanted people to glorify the Father, and that's what they did. They were saying, we've never seen anything like this. And so maybe this is a story that you've heard before, you've studied it before, you've heard sermons and lessons on it. Maybe you haven't looked too deeply into it, but what a beautiful and powerful story it is. And I want to suggest to you as we close that it's not only beautiful or, or powerful, but it's also very relevant to us. It's something that we can learn a lot from. And so as we close, really briefly, I want to ask you six questions. And as we ask these six questions, reflect not only on this story in Mark the second chapter, but also reflect on your own life for just a few minutes. Question number one, what kind of friends do you have? What kind of friends did the paralytic have? They're some pretty amazing friends, weren't they? They were willing to do whatever it took to bring their friend to Jesus. They, as we said, they came from no telling where. Went to the paralytic's house. Got him on his bed. Picked it up at each corner. Carried it, no telling how far to where Jesus was. When they saw the crowd, they weren't discouraged. They didn't turn away. Instead, they went up on top of the roof. They dug a hole in the roof that was big enough to lower the bed through. And they lowered their friend. Why? So that the friend could come into contact with Jesus. They were willing to do whatever it took to place their needy friend in contact with the only one who could give him what he needed. That's what kind of friends the paralytic had. What kind of friends do you have? Oh, I have friends that I'm able to have fun with. I have friends and we're able to go out and we're able to have a good time. We laugh all the time. We have similar interests. We like doing the same things. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. We should have fun with our friends. We should be able to laugh with our friends. We should be able to go out and, and enjoy life together. But the question is, are your friends like these friends? Are your friends going to hold you accountable to Jesus? Are your friends concerned about your standing with Jesus? Are your friends going to do whatever it takes to draw you closer to Jesus? To bring you to Jesus? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33 something that we shouldn't be deceived about, yet it's something that we're often deceived about. Bad company corrupts good morals. Who you spend your time around is eventually what you are going to become. Or do your friends love you enough 
to do whatever they can to bring you closer to Jesus, I want to suggest to you that if they're not actively concerned about your relationship with Jesus, they don't really love you like they should. And they're not really the friends that they should be. What kind of friends do you have? That's an important question. But perhaps an even more important question is what kind of friend are you? Are you the friend who is concerned about your friend's relationships with Jesus? Are you the friend who's going to do whatever it takes to bring your friends to the one who can solve their biggest problems? I've been there. I've made that mistake where we have friendships and we involve everything in that friendship except for what's most important. Our friendship touches every area of our lives and we can talk about anything and we can involve ourselves in anything except for the one thing in our lives that should, con- that should control everything. What kind of friend are you? I know you're concerned about your friend's safety and their well-being and if they're taken care of or not, but are you concerned about their souls? Are you doing everything that you can to try to bring them to Jesus to help them to come to know Jesus, what kind of friends do you have? What kind of friend are you? I think this text encourages us to ask that question when we see friends who will stop at nothing to bring this paralytic to Jesus. Question number three, are you a Hebrews 11.6 person? Well, what does Hebrews 11.6 say? It says, and without faith it is impossible to please Him, please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The four friends, the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, they are Hebrews 11.6 people. They believe in Jesus. They believe in what Jesus is capable of. They believe that Jesus is the answer. And based on that belief, they're diligently seeking Jesus. They're seeking Jesus to the point that they're digging a hole in Peter's roof big enough to put a bed through. They believe in Jesus. They're seeking after Jesus. And we see in Hebrews 11.6 and in this text, that pleases Jesus. Jesus looks at their faith and is pleased and ultimately rewards them in some pretty amazing ways. Are you a Hebrews 11.6 person? Do you believe in Jesus? I'm not asking you if you just believe that He's there. I'm asking you, have you placed your trust in Jesus? Have you placed your faith in Jesus to the point that it controls everything that you do? I believe and I trust in Jesus so much that I'm diligently seeking after Him every day that I live. And He is my number one priority because that's what pleases Jesus. And whenever we are Hebrews 11.6 people, we will be able to experience the same reward that the paralytic experienced. Not the physical healing, that's secondary. The spiritual healing with the words, Son, your sins are forgiven. Question number four, have you embraced Jesus' authority to forgive your sins? That is the main point of this passage. That Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. As God on earth, Jesus is capable of forgiving a person's sins. We see that with the paralytic, but oftentimes we don't see that in our own lives. We think about ourselves as too far gone. We think about ourselves as doing too much. There's no way Jesus could forgive me because all of the sins that I've committed, this text tells you that that kind of thinking couldn't be farther from the truth. Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins. 
Just like Jesus forgave the paralytic sins, Jesus is able to forgive your sin. Jesus wants to forgive your sin. If you'll just submit your life to Him and embrace that reality. Have you embraced the reality that Jesus has the authority to forgive even your sins? When you do, it's going to completely change your life. Number five, are you willing to endure the conflict that will come from following Jesus? We see it briefly this week in Mark 2. We're going to see it more next week as we walk throughout the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Jesus does some amazing things. Jesus does some beautiful things, but those things are not absent of conflict. Sometimes following Jesus is going to create conflict. Sometimes following Jesus is going to put tension and pressure on your relationships with other people. Are you going to endure that conflict? Or are you going to run away from it? Are you going to be ashamed? Or are you going to be unashamed? Are you going to stand in the midst of conflict and address it in a bold and loving way? Or are you going to hide from it? Jesus didn't hide from it. He endured it. I want to encourage us to do the same thing. And then finally, number six, are you amazed by Jesus? Because in this text, the crowd gathered together on that day in the house were amazed. They stood in awe of Jesus. We need to recognize what Jesus does in our lives is not normal. What Jesus does in our lives, the transformation that He gives, the forgiveness that He gives, is not standard run-of-the-mill kind of stuff. When we think about how Jesus is portrayed in Scripture, when we think about how Jesus interacts with us, it should leave us amazed. Jesus is amazing, and He does amazing things. We should stand in awe of Him every day that we live. When we see Jesus, it should lead us to glorify God, realizing this doesn't happen with everybody. It doesn't happen with anybody, except for the one who has the authority to forgive sin. The one who can give cleansing and healing in a way that nobody else can. Do you live your life amazed by Jesus? Or is it something that has become normal, average to you? Has it grown cold to you? It's a beautiful story. The healing of the paralytic that I believe we can learn a lot from. And what's amazing to think about is the very same Jesus that we see in this story is the same Jesus that invites us into relationship with Him. The same Jesus that said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. The same Jesus who had the authority to forgive sins on earth still has the authority to forgive sins today. He can forgive your sins today. He can forgive your sins tonight if you'll just submit your life to Him as together we stand and sing the invitation song.